Well, I wonder if you know about Bonnie Prince Charlie. Um, In 1745, he arrived in Scotland uh, to raise an army against the English monarch, George II. Uh, He raised that army um, and marched to Edinburgh, defeating the English there, uh, then doing the same in Carlisle. And by December of that year, he had reached Derby, 130 miles from London and the English throne. Uh, The capital was in panic. George II was packing his bags to return to Hanover. It seemed as if Bonnie Prince Charlie might win, and yet he became scared and turned back. By the April of the next year, the rebellion was over. Bonnie Prince Charlie turned back, and England is not Scotland now. But there's often times in the, the Christian life when we might think of turning back We might think the prospect of persecution before us is too much, and so we turn back. You see it time and again in the New Testament. In Thessalonians, we find Paul worried for the persecuted Christians there. He is worried that they might have been shaken, that they might want to turn back. In the Acts of the Apostles, we see Paul going through Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the hearts of the disciples, encouraging them in their faith, encouraging them to hold fast and not turn back. Now, you might have come here this evening wondering whether this is worth it. Is it worth being a Christian? People are mocking you. People are marginalizing you. You get overlooked at work because you're a Christian and you're on the edge. Now, I know of somebody who, when she got to work, she would find everything on her desk rearranged by her work colleagues. She would find people murmuring her about her behind her back, ridiculing her because she wouldn't do things wrong, being picked on because she wouldn't leave early and she made them look bad being persecuted for her faith. When those things happen, they can make us wonder whether we should turn back for the ease of a quiet life, fitting in with the mass of humanity. You see, being a Christian at times is hard work. It seems as if it might be easier to give up and join everyone else. They'll leave it all behind for an anonymous life. Why should we continue when everything seems against Christians and when it seems hard work to be a Christian? Well, tonight Daniel will help us to see why we should not turn back. And even if you do not feel that kind of feeling at this time, Daniel will help us to see that when those feelings come, when persecutions come, why you should not turn back. Now Daniel is going to help us to do that through the dream that we read in Daniel chapter 7. Now, you might think it's silly to be learning from a dream, and yet this is how God has spoken to Daniel and spoken to us through Daniel. This is his chosen means for us tonight. The dream contains what's called apocalyptic literature. It uses bold images and striking symbolism to make its point. It draws weird and wonderful pictures for us, and the purpose of which is to help us to understand reality. The fundamental message of apocalyptic literature is clear, although sometimes round the edges it's a bit fuzzy, a little bit ambiguous sometimes. And yet that all helps to see that this literature has applications for many different situations in different times 
Well, as we begin, let me just show you how the, the chapter is structured. Uh, you see that on your, on your outline if you have one. Uh, you could divide the chapter into two halves if you like. There's the, the report of the vision and an explanation of the vision. And so in verses 2 to 14, you see what Daniel saw a series of images moving from one picture to the next. We see the, the four beasts coming from the sea. We see the, the little horn. We see the courtroom with the Ancient of Days seated on his throne. And the vision moves then to the judgment of the beasts. And finally then the investiture of the one like a son of man. Well, if that's the first half of what Daniel saw, the second half is an explanation and so in verse 15, we see Daniel entering into the vision and asking what it means. The one he asks gives an initial interpretation in verses 17 and 18. The initial interpretation doesn't exhaust the meaning of the dream, so Daniel asks for and receives further clarification in the rest of the chapter. And so if that's the general outline of the chapter, let's look in a bit more detail at what actually is said in each section. Now imagine if you were one night standing on Stanage Edge with the rain uh, driving at you and it's dark and you're there alone and then this comes upon you. My mind paralyzed by the dreadful shape which had sprung upon us from the shadows of the fog. A hound it was, an enormous coal black hound, but not such a hound as mortal eyes have ever seen. Fire burst from its open mouth. Its eyes glowed with smoldering glare. Its muzzles and hackle and dewlap were outlined in flickering flame. Never in the delirious dream of a disordered brain could anything more savage, more appalling, more hellish be conceived than that dark form and savage face which broke upon us out of the wall of fog. Now that's um, Arthur Conan Doyle's description of the Hound of the Baskervilles. It's a terrifying and frightening vision. And that is the kind of vision that we have in Daniel 7. It's a terrifying and frightening vision. The vision begins in verse 2 with Daniel at the seaside. But this is no tropical idyll. No, it's a tempestuous picture with the sea churning and boiling. The sea in the Bible it symbolizes rebellion against God. This frenzied seascape is a symbol of the forces of evil, an image of the destructive forces against the creator of the world, the forces which are seeking to undo everything that is good in creation. And from this tumultuous sea come four beasts, four beasts which are disorders of natural order, natural creation. They're distortions. And so in verse 4, there's the, the lion that has the wings of an eagle that stood on two feet and has the, the wings torn off. Second in verse 5 is the bear uh, that's uh, raised on one side as if it is off balance. It has three ribs in its mouth, all that's left of its previous meal, and it is told to eat more flesh. Then in verse 6, there's the third beast, which looks like a leopard, yet has four wings. It strikes fast, and if you think you can hide from it, well, think again, because it has four heads to get you in its sights. And then we come to the fourth beast, and we're meant to focus on this beast. You see how it's introduced in verse 7. It says, After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me... It's the same way as the whole vision was introduced in verse 2. It spotlights this beast for us, 
this fourth beast. And Daniel can't compare it to anything else. In verse 7, it is merely terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It's obviously not normal. It has iron teeth. And in verse 19, it, it has bronze claws. It's a vicious beast that crushes and devours its victims, but is not content with just that, and it tramples them underfoot till nothing remains. And the grotesque nature of this beast continues, because it has ten horns, three of which are uprooted before another which grows, a little horn which has eyes and a mouth and boasts. So this beast that has arisen from the tumultuous sea the horn that has come from forces of, the forces of evil speaks boastful words. Now it means that this beast speaks evil words, words against God. And we see in the interpretation of the dream in verse 17 that these terrifying beasts represent four kingdoms, kingdoms which are opposed to God. Now, the first three kingdoms are beastly, they're malevolent, they arise from the forces of evil against God, and yet it's the fourth beast which is the worst. Do you see what the the heavenly interpreter tells Daniel of that beast in verse 23? He says, The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. He continues in verse 25, He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. This beast is terrible. It speaks against God. It mocks God. It raises its fist to God. You can imagine it saying, God, you are a spent force. I am king now. I am in charge of everything. And this beast oppresses the people of God, the saints of the Most High. This is a kingdom which oppresses those people who stand for God, a kingdom which persecute Christian people. And as Daniel looked in verse 21, he sees that the beast looks to be winning. Now there's been much ink spilt about what are these kingdoms Most people seem to think that Babylon is the first beast. But then there's disagreement about the others. So the bear might be Medio-Persia or it might just be Media. The third beast might be Greece or Persia. Or the fourth beast might be Rome or Greece or the Seleucids. Then there's disagreement about who the little horn is. Is it the, um, the Antichrist to come or Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes? Well, in some ways it doesn't matter. Because what we are meant to see here is that behind the kingdoms of this world there are beastly forces. There are beastly forces which are opposed to the rule of God. Spiritual forces underneath and behind what we see in this world. You see them in history. So Antiochus IV Epiphanes was a terrible king. He destroyed the people of God. Emperor Nero killed Christians. Emperor Diocletian forced Christians to renounce Jesus Christ on the threat of execution. We see ruthless persecutions of Christian people in our own times. We hear of it happening in North Korea. I heard the story recently of a a little girl who was set a, a challenge by her class teacher. 
They had to, the class had to go home and try and find a little black book that might be hidden in the house somewhere and bring it back in the next day. And so the little girl thought, I know where that little black book is. It's hidden under the sofa. And so the next day she came in triumphantly holding this little black book, her parents' Bible. Her prize was to never see her parents ever again. A terrible persecution, a beastly persecution from the kingdoms of our world. But then there are other beastly forces in our world against the people of God and around us, which might not be so violent as that. Forces which might not be so much like the fourth beast, and yet beastly they are. Those who mock God openly in public. Those who say it's foolish to think there is a God. Those who make laws and seek to try and undermine Christian faith and Christian values who tell you you are not allowed to pray with people at work, who say you must leave your faith at the door, effectively that you must renounce Christ. You see, the powers we see outlined in Daniel 7 are present in the historical kingdoms of the world. There are spiritual forces present in every age which oppose God. Forces which might make us want to turn back as we see them. Don't be surprised that there is such forces in the world. God knows that there are forces. Be alert to the reality of the times that we live in. There are beastly forces at work in our world. But this vision has more to teach us. Look back at verse 8. Now, While this little horn is proclaiming its greatness and the smallness of God, something else is happening on the other side of the stage. And the horn seems oblivious to what's going on, oblivious to the fact that a courtroom is being set up. Now, it's a bit like when the teacher used to go out of the class and little Johnny used to stand up on the table and make fun of the teacher and do impersonations, completely unaware that the teacher is standing behind him again. And here is this little horn standing on the table mocking God while a court is set up. And the Ancient of Days takes his seat. One with extraordinary wisdom and power. One who is obviously unparalleled, who comes and takes his seat. You see the fearsomeness and the purity that there is in this one. His clothes and his hair are dazzling white. There is fire under his throne and a a river of fire flowing from his throne. He's millions of people attending him. And all the while the horn is boasting about his greatness, mocking God. Come on then, God, have a go if you think you're hard enough. And in verse 10, the court is seated and the books are opened. The court is in session. The charge book is being read out. And in verse 11, the horn is still boasting. And yet the charge is pronounced and the court judges. And the horn is destroyed. You see it in verse 11. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The same thing is said in in the interpretation of verse 26. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. You see, the beastly forces of this world have a time 
They will not continue forever. God is in control. These beastly forces of evil which stand behind reality will not continue forever. There's a time coming when they will be destroyed. And as you feel like turning back from following God, from being a Christian, turning back to the masses for an easy life, hold fast. God is in control. Don't turn back to those things which are opposed to God and which ultimately are going to be destroyed. Well, Daniel's dream moves on again, and we see another introductory formula in verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me, it signals another development in the dream, something else to focus on. And we are introduced to one like a son of man. Now, before moving too quickly to the New Testament, just see what's being said in this chapter. You see, this one, this one like a son of man in verse 13, doesn't come from the sea. It doesn't come up from those forces of rebellion against God. No, this one like a son of man is a human being. It's not a beastly, disordered human being. Here is orderly, perfect creation. Here is humanity as it is meant to be. Humanity rightly ordered. Humanity in right relationship with God. Here is a human that is given in verse 14 authority and glory and sovereign power, a kingdom that will never pass away. And this one like a son of man is a representative of humanity. You see, we need to see the connection in this chapter between uh, the Son of Man here and then uh, the saints of the Most High in the rest of the chapter. So you see in verse 18, in the initial interpretation that Daniel's given, it says in verse, it says there, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. You see here, it's the saints of the Most High who receive this kingdom. The kingdom which the saints receive and which will go on and on and on and on. In verse 22, Daniel describes the same thing. The ancient of days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And we see it again in verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. You see, there's an identification in this chapter between the Son of Man figure and the saints of the Most High. And the Son of Man seems to be here a representative of the saints of the Most High. He is the perfect picture of humanity, the representative of the saints. He is the exemplar. The saints of the Most High modeled on perfect humanity in one like the Son of Man. You see, when Jesus uses the title of Son of Man, we should think, here is the perfect man. Jesus, the historical man who was the epitome of what it meant to be human. Jesus, the epitome of a man faithfully serving his God. Perfect humanity in every sense. And he fulfills the perfect picture of humanity throughout the Bible. And so when Psalm 8 celebrates the great dignity and position of humanity, 
Jesus is that man. And when Psalm 8 says that humanity is crowned with glory and honour, it is Jesus who is crowned with glory and honour. When Psalm 8 says that he was made to rule over the works of your hands, it is Jesus who was made to rule over humanity perfectly. We just don't quite fit that perfect picture. We are not those who we are those who don't rule everything as we should. We are not those who have honour and glory as the Lord Jesus does. See, when Jesus comes, here is the perfect man. And the surprise in the New Testament is that here is the perfect man who is God himself, the God-man. But you see, more than this, Jesus has gone before us. You see, Jesus is the one who faces uh, the beastly forces of this world Jesus faced those forces which rage against us and which have raged in the kingdoms of this world. It seems as if the beasts win when they come to Jesus as he is crucified. And yet Jesus is vindicated. Jesus is raised to life. Jesus, this perfect servant of God, did not turn back in the face of persecution and received the vindication in the end. Jesus has been given the kingdom of God, the one who faced persecution, the one who faced death and who was vindicated, was given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the king of the kingdom. You see, Jesus went through what Daniel presented here. Persecution followed by vindication for the people of God. Christians here tonight... Don't be surprised that you might face persecution. Don't be surprised that there might be beastly forces in this world which oppose you and make it tough to be a Christian. We will suffer as Christians, but we know that we will receive vindication and Jesus guarantees that for us as he has gone before us. Facing those beastly forces and showing that there is vindication for the people of God. If you're thinking of turning back tonight, don't. Stand firm. Stand firm knowing that in the end there will be vindication in a kingdom which goes on and on and on. A kingdom rightly related to the Lord, the giver of life. Stand firm. Don't turn back. Shall we pray together?